Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have a very special episode for you this week. This is a crossover episode with another podcast called The Lanky Guys. These are two good friends of mine, Father Peter Musset and Dr. Scott Powell from Boulder, Colorado. Their podcast is amazing. They break open scripture every Thursday for the upcoming Sunday liturgies. They tie everything together. They give you a lot of backstory for the readings uh, coming up on Sunday. And by the time you listen to this podcast and then you go to Mass on Sunday, you already know what's going on in the readings. It's a really amazing resource. So check it out. I will put a link to their podcast on our uh, episode. I just really love this conversation. It was far better than I could have ever expected, and it makes me think that we probably should do something like this again, not just with the Lanky Guys, but possibly other podcasts as well. It was just an incredible conversation, and I really hope to do it again soon. So without further ado, episode 42 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. You know what I was thinking about today? Are you old enough to remember the movie Poltergeist? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Chris made, Chris made fun of me because I called it The Poltergeist. No, that was me. Yeah. Oh. I accused you of being a millennial for not knowing that. Well, first of all, I am a millennial. You don't yeah. need to accuse me. <laughs> I listened to that. But there's the little old lady in it who's like the medium, and she's, she was also the Where's the Beef Lady on Wendy's. And that was the, the same lady? Hair. Yeah. And she would say... Wow. Go into the light. I'm crossing over, crossing over. You know why I'm saying this, Jesse, right? Uh, oh, because this is a crossover. It is a crossover. Yes. Over. Yes. The liturgy and the lanky are now a subset of guys together. But all, all guys. Yeah. Still. yeah. I wish we were all lanky, but one of us. <laughs> one of these things Dennis. is not like the other. Oh, Dennis, you're so fat. I looked up the etymology of the word lanky for preparation Did for this. Did you really? Do you know? No, I, I've been doing the podcast for five years, but I have never looked it up. Well, from Old English, hlunk, meaning loose and empty, meagerly slim and flaccid. From mm-hmm. the Proto-Germanic word hlunka, meaning words uh, to bend, to turn. But perhaps it may be related <laughs> to the word, the word pie. Like I can get behind that. Pie is the bending or turning and connecting with the notion of flexible. Pie, so, P-I-E? Like P-I-E, you eat, I guess because like the, the crust is flexible or, mm-hmm. and flat. Or, or lanky. What's the old English pronunciation again? I Hlunk. H L A N C. Hlunk. Hlunk. So loose Hlunk. and empty, meagerly slim and flaccid. Thanks, man. None Thanks for welcoming us to your podcast. Most <laughs> things that most guys don't want to be accused of. <laughs> yeah. Worst welcome I've ever yeah. seen. Well, there you go. Yeah, people say I'm like pido all the time. But now, because you've changed the word forever, mm-hmm. lanky is a good thing. So it means something different. I'm Hlunk. kind of. I don't know which Jesse. Which one of us is lankiest? I, think I he's can't. Lankier. It's like we saying. Can't measure after, after <laughs> yeah. the podcast. Well, six I've, foot one seventy two. Well, what's so, your what's your wingspan? I I'm think pretty darn close to that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm well, three that. foot thirty six inches. <laughs> and, uh, oh. About one sixty. All right. Well, okay. You you win on the linky. Uh, yeah. the linky I don't know if that's true. We that can't see you well enough, Father, to know how linky you are. But I know uh, I, I I'm failing on all of those levels. You know, I think that, uh, that you two are taking the cake. But actually, I'm sitting. The pie. Here and Maybe you took the cake if you're not so linky anymore. 
yeah, well, my my po- my pants just pop open because they don't fit anymore because I'm on vacation. Oh, I see. Yeah. Where, where are you now, fellow? Um, I'm in my basement. Um, <laughs> in what in what state? You're skyping in. We're uh, facetiming. Colorado. Okay. Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado. And the rest of us here are in lovely Mundelein, Illinois. Mundelein, Jesse. Illinois. Why don't you introduce our crossover guest, please? All right. So uh, we have. Dr. Scott Powell, please say hello so we know which one you are. Hello, everyone. He's right. the one in the room with us. I am actually in Mundelein, Illinois. And he wins the lanky contest. And uh, I know yeah. Dr. Scott Powell from uh, my work at Camp Wojtyla, mm. which is running right now, which is, is an amazing uh, Catholic outdoor camp in Colorado. And our other guest here is Father Peter Musset. Father, hello, please say hi. Yes, hello. Um, who I also met through when I was working at camp. Uh, you came in and helped us with some creative marketing ideas, which is really oh, yeah. great. We had a little uh, um, little uh, huddle about what, how we can market the program better, so that was good. Uh, I was going to say powwow, but I know what the oh, TP is. Powwow. TP is. There's a lot of Absolutely. crossover. Mm-hmm. So um, for our listeners... Mm. These two gentlemen are the uh, co-hosts of an amazing podcast called The Lanky Guys. And what they do is they break open scripture. Um, Thursdays, you guys release your podcast on Thursdays, right? Yes, we do. So right before the Sunday Mass, you can listen to their, their podcast on Thursday and learn about all the texts from the readings on the upcoming Sunday. And then, like me, when you sit there in Mass, you can be like, oh, wait, I remember something. This is important because of this. Or if you're a priest, you can listen at 845 on Sunday, right before you start Mass and have your homily. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So, and I'm actually... We're there for either group. (laughs) Yeah. You don't even have to be a priest or a normal person to listen to the podcast. Dogs, (laughs) I hear you guys have a lot of dogs that listen to your podcast. We there, yep. Yeah, I've got no response to that. <laughs> it's through the intercession of uh, uh, St. Anthony of Padua that the fish will listen to us, dogs, mm. cats. It's it's great entertainment for the kids. Dogs and cats them. living together. Total anarchy. <laughs> so, Total hysteria. So one Total of the hysteria. things I wanted to uh, talk to you guys about today, so uh, we have liturgy, we have scripture, mm. and I felt like this would be a really good time to have a conversation where we kind of um, dive into both word, worlds and kind of share what we know about that. And when I say we, I mean... Dennis and not myself, um, but uh, but anyway, I, I just think it's it's so fascinating. We have the the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist and all of these things that are really important. And you guys do so much to prepare people, priests as well as dogs and cats, uh, for mass on Sunday. And what we do here at the liturgical institute is we prepare people. Uh, we catechize them and help them understand what the liturgy is itself. So um, if I could ask. Uh, Dr. Scott Powell Uh-oh. about uh, the origin of scripture in the liturgy itself and um, or the origin of liturgy yeah. in the scripture how about that? oh yeah ah, see oh. that that might well, okay is this a, a chicken and an egg thing it might be the origin of, let me let me wrap my mind around your question really quick the origin of scripture in the liturgy or I, wrap I mean, my question around your mind <laughs> can you have so it, it goes to a deep question can you have scripture with can you have well I think both are actually valid questions. Can you have liturgy without scripture? And can you have scripture without liturgy? The second one sounds weirder to our, I think, Western ears because we think of, and I don't mean this as a slam, but because of you know much of the Protestant influence on Christianity in this part of the world, we think of scripture as something that is independent and wholly separate from the liturgy rather than something that finds its most proper home 
within the liturgy. Going back to the Old Testament times, I mean, the proper place for the scriptures, the Torah, for the, the Pentateuch, the, and of course, you know, the scriptures today, has always been in the liturgy. And I'm not sure... I'm, I'm hesitating on the other question because there's different types of liturgy. We mm-hmm. have our Christian liturgy. There is Jewish liturgy that precedes us, but there are other liturgical realities in different religions. I mean, most religions in the history of the world have had some sort of liturgy with them mm-hmm. in the sense of there is ritual and there is practice. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, I'm not sure if you can separate the, the scriptures from the liturgy. Because and, and it's one of those things, you know, this is why I think our world and our, our culture, the Western world, the United States, whatever you want to say, is so confused on, on both liturgy and scripture and why we have so many different translations and interpretations and, and different expressions of litur- liturgy, which are either good or bad or somewhere in between, is because we've divorced the two from one another. So we don't know how to read the scriptures because they've been taken out of their proper context. And we don't know how to make sense of the liturgy because the scriptures that actually inform them have been taken out of that context as well. And so now we have this weird hodgepodge of theology and stuff that people study. Into, you know, There's an there's a orthodox theologian, I can't remember if it was... Uh, Schmemann or Calixtus Ware, one of those guys. But he made the case that the downfall of scripture study was when scriptures were removed from the liturgical life of the monasteries and put strictly in the academy. And hmm. universities just started studying scripture apart from the liturgical life of the church. When, do you know when that, that happened? When we, when uh, that? The Middle Ages, sometime, po- you know, probably, well, we blame everything on the Enlightenment, right? Sure, so let's do it here. Their, it's probably their fault. Yeah, nice. And millennials. <laughs> and probably the, and the millennials. Yeah, it was they the, did it. The Enlightenment time millennials. Right. Yeah, different yeah. millennium. But they were, they were. You wouldn't have heard of them. They're, they were millennials. Um, <laughs> well, you would because they complain. But then, you, so you also, so not only do you have scripture and that it's it's read scripture, gospels, readings, all that, but you also have scripture within baked right. into <laughs> baked in the yeah. language of the mass, the pie itself. of the liturgy, the pie so of baked, the liturgy. Yeah. yeah, that blanky pie <laughs> of the liturgy. Right. They may not read the book of Revelation at any particular mass or every mass, but mm-hmm. then when you see what John the Divine actually sees is the liturgy of heaven, and our job is to participate right. in that, sacramentalize that. Mm-hmm. When you lead into the Sanctus, it's not just because it's a pleasant little tune, but the angels are singing that around the throne of God, and we want to do what they're doing in heaven here on earth and prepare to be doing that forever. So even if you're not reading John's vision of heaven, you're, you are. you're moving around in it, and you're singing it, doing it, looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, and it should be noted even in the, the revelation of John, it's, he's receiving this revelation. It certainly appears that he's receiving the revelation itself within the context of the liturgy. He's saying mass, and he says, as I was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day, which is shorthand for as mm-hmm. I was saying mass as the bishop. And then what did he see in the sky? He saw a tear in the sky. Right? Oh, a schizo. Just like right? the, uh, at the tear baptism. of the, the veil I'm going to talk about temple, that tonight right? at uh, my talk at the... Scripture conference. At the Summer Scripture conference. The Summer Scripture conference. So if the temple was the earth and heaven, oh, I see where you're and then the veil that. is torn so you can see through into the Holy of Holies, then you have this kind of vision of the viewing from the earthly reality into the heavenly reality. Oh, that's cool. I don't you, know if I've you, ever caught that. You believe that. me? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm half believe you. It's my speculation. It'd be interesting to see if it's the same word. Uh, Father Peter. Yes. As a priest, what is... Um, yeah, you're the only priest here. Yeah, What what is it... Um, what's the importance of the priest in terms of you know, interacting fully with the language of the Mass um, that, again, comes from, to us from the Scripture? Well, you know, I've always been taught um, that uh, the liturgy is the privileged place of reflection upon the Scriptures. 
So, in, in a in a very real sense, how do you, as a priest, it's this question that resides inside of me. How do I, as a priest, remain open to the collective um, meditation experience and movement of the Spirit from the Word of God in the midst of the liturgy itself? So. So, um, as a presider, which um, is really one who kind of brings together, uh, who, who allows what the work in individual lives of people, uh, the spirits moving in individual lives of the people, how do I allow it to come together in the right way? So, as a priest, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's a radical amount of trust to be able to say that this is the privileged place of being able to engage the scriptures and allowing it to move in a different way than just um, than just having a kind of a pre-formulated, pre-programmed uh, mission, which is which is a little bit more dangerous, and it takes a lot a lot more trust to be able to 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 allow the Lord to move you in in those ways. So I think that that's really the ideal for mm. as a priest. Um, one one. Uh world that I think uh, both you, Dr. Scott, and you, Dr. Dennis. Whoa, um, Jesse called me doctor because you're uh, here. Yeah. <laughs> There's a line from Downton Abbey where the old lady Grantham says, the presence of strangers is our only guarantee of civility. So hmm. the presence of strangers here makes you you're much welcome. more civil toward me. Oh, yeah. Sweet. We <laughs> have stranger things in our presence. Okay. Um, but one, one, I think, topic that you both... Um, have a lot of interest in is creation. Mm. And so, um, Scott, you have all this information about the fall, and is this what you did your um, doctorate on creation and the fall and the harmonies and all that type of stuff? Yeah, that's the simplest answer is yes. Sure. And then, you know, Dennis, you know, you take your architectural experience and understand what does the actual church building itself look like? And, and we were even talking about this, Scott, yeah, yeah. on the way here about, you know, some of these churches um, that they're like, well, let's not have sacred art. Let's just view the outside world. And we'll just yeah. have these big windows here because that's, that's the view out to create God's creation. Right? But God's that's fallen creation. Right. Yeah. But, that, but creation itself is fallen. And so, Dennis, you've talked a lot about um, the importance of seeing perfected creation, even in the art in the church building itself. And that's temple theology. Yeah. You know, the catechism, not the catechism, the, the Catholic encyclopedia from 1967. Wait, there's a Catholic encyclopedia? Yeah, we did have, it, there's like a 20-volume set. Here. Did they ever have it on CD-ROM? I think it, it, you can see the old <laughs> one is free on New Adam. It's, it's only on microfiche. Oh. oh. <laughs> but uh, it has a little, actually, you know, you think going to the encyclopedia, it's like the fifth grade book. But every now and then I run to that for a little summary. And their entry on, the, on temple is amazing. It gives all these eight points of what a temple is. And one of them is it's a microcosm of a restored creation. It's the place where the divinity dwells. But the reason the divinity, it's a microcosm of restored creation is because the divinity is there and has glorified it. And so creation involves angels, saints, garden, earth, trees, birds, and all that stuff brought together and glorified. And so, you know, if you want to see your eschatological vision, your perfect vision, then you use the medium of art to do that. Okay. I got, I got to push back a little bit. Okay. And, we're in, and we're in a blurry area here. Sure. Because it's cloudy in mm-hmm. my mind. Yeah. That was stupid. Because you're not um, wearing your glasses. Because I'm not, I'm not actually. Um, here's, where, here's where the life of... Here's where our Christian view, the Catholic view of creation gets complicated. And this is sort of one of the things my, you talked to my dissertation and touched on this because it really wasn't about the Genesis text. It was partially about that. But it focused on this line from, uh, not Revelation, from Romans 
that talks about all of creation is groaning out in travail, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, the, and I, I steal the, I, every week of camp. I give the same the same spiel, and mm-hmm. you've heard it a million times yep. from working with me. But it's this idea that you know. So these relationships we were made in Genesis in the beginning. Catechism talks about this to be in a relationship with God that was fruitful, that was sensible. In a relationship with ourselves, we were meant to be holy in the image and likeness of God. A relationship with the people around us, right? Um, Adam and Eve, self gift. And lastly, we're meant to be in relationship with the rest of the created order, right? Adam names the animals, it implies relationship, all these things are good. Original sin comes, tears everything apart. You know, we break trust with God, that's the, the fundamental sin. And so everything else falls apart. I'm ashamed of my nakedness, you know, all the things we fight, we blame. Creation is now broken, creation lashes out against human beings. Wow. You just described my relationship with Jesse pretty, mm-hmm. pretty well. Yeah, no, that's why, that's why. Except for the nakedness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm ashamed. <laughs> just the shame part. Yeah. <laughs> But you, and so I always ask the cameras, and you've heard me ask this a million mm-hmm. times. You know, I said, so do we live in a broken world? And the Catholic, and the truest Catholic answer is no, we do not. We live in a broken but redeemed world, yes. mm-hmm. which is not a simple answer either. It's not everything's great, everything's super now. No, it's still broken, but it has been redeemed. Now we haven't seen the redemption in its fullness yet. But this is where I'm, I'm so fascinated with, you know, especially working with young people in the wilderness. This is the whole pedagogy of, of JP two Camp Voitiwa before he was Pope was creation in its fallenness yet having been redeemed, although not in its fullness, can actually begin to teach us what it means by analogy to be human beings who have been reconciled back to God but have not felt the fullness of that yet. And so liturgically and architecturally, we live in this weird in-between period where, yeah, there is a, but it's not the same as the temple because the temple was embodying in a very real way um, it wasn't embodying, but it was speaking to the brokenness of creation, that we need to look for that reconciliation. We need to look to that eschatological vision. And now, actually, we're in the eschatological vision, although we can't see it fully yet. So that, that comes down to this, this definitely harder question, which, to me, a great church is one that actually does speak and bring in the natural world and still has the vestiges of the temple and the perfection of the eschatological creation, but is actually there has room for both because Christ is still unpacking this. And that's why that line in Romans, which is so fascinating to me, it says creation is literally groaning out in travail, waiting for us to live this out. It's not waiting for God to act because God has acted. And now it's waiting for the fulfillment of it, the lifting of the veil, I suppose. But now we live in this weird in-between period, which is, I think, something the liturgy also speaks to, is how to live in the in-between, which is different than the Old Testament liturgy. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament liturgy was waiting for the coming. And now we're in the coming, but waiting for the other one. Right. And Colonel Ratzinger settles that. I think he quotes Ambrose and the shadow image reality issue, right? Yeah, so right, right, The right, temple right. teaches yeah. you something, but it's not full. Absolutely. There's the reality, which is the heavenly future. We're not there yet. And the yeah. shadow is participation in the future and a fulfillment to some degree. Of you guys the clearly know what you're talking about. And I'm just <laughs> sitting over here like. But I think my preference falls on the, when you go into a church, you're not really contemplating the deer and the woods and the stream. <laughs> Right. When you go into the church, you, you don't see out of it because what you've done is walked into the sacramental participation in that reality of the future. And right. then when you go out and do That's your right. camping and all yes. that stuff, then you appreciate the sunsets and the trout and the cutthroat <laughs> trout and all that stuff and all the goodness of creation. But that the liturgical setting is primarily an eschatological setting. Father Peter's working on a, uh, a, a, a revamping of our parish back home. And I know there's going to be trout in the sanctuary oh. as far as I know, right? Which is great. Oh. Yeah, I, I want to have the river of life as you anticipate going towards the tree of life, so that so that it's a, a 
as it's flowing forth to the temple, all creation comes and feeds on the streams from from the from the te- from the tree of life. So we'll have to swim up to communion. <laughs> yep. There's going to be a it's lazy like a lap, river. It's a lap pool. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote a little piece for uh, Magnificat about the mosaic. I think it's in St. John Lateran in Rome, and there's a little river at the bottom of the mosaic. So the apse has that kind of semicircular thing. Mm. And at the edge where the straight wall meets the curve, it says uh, the River Jordan in Latin. And there's a little Greek river god with a jar and the river's coming out of it. And there are all these little angels swimming in it. One of them's windsurfing. So (laughs) the River Jordan is not only a barrier, not no longer a barrier to getting to the promised land, but it's actually fun to get across (laughs) it. You can windsurf across the River Jordan and get to the other side. Now we're talking. That's good looking. Didn't you, uh, Dennis, say there was a type of material that is sometimes used in baptismal fonts that has fossils in it? I forgot the word for that. Fossiliferous Fossiliferous. stones. There are a whole bunch of them out there, but that's something that uh, I try to encourage when I advise people to say, Ice and snow, bless the Lord. You know, sea creatures, water creatures, bless the Lord. Even though they've been dead for a million years, they're <laughs> coming into a church today and showing the sea creatures that were prepared by God for uh, His glory. Is that something? Is that something you can buy at like Home Depot? <laughs> it is, strangely enough. Uh, <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like some precious thing you'd have to climb to the top of the mountain it to does. find, but actually, it's just limestone with certain fossils in or other kinds. Oh. Some of them are more elaborate, you know, they're colorful and you can see the real snail shells and everything, but mm. pretty much lime, all limestone is the compressed bodies of sea creatures that were under the weight of the water for a million years. And if you polish them up, you can see, even our campus, huh. all this limestone around here, if you look closely, you can see little sea shells. Seashells by the seashore. Yeah, we should have done that before we started talking. Unique New York. Um, So I think that it's really cool that we're actually talking about this anticipated eschatology, the nature of fallen creation or redeemed creation and how we live in this anticipation and then how the word um, manifests within the liturgy and how the liturgy manifests within the word. There's a a quote from Balthazar that's been inspiring me recently, which is, the word becomes more and more flesh, and the flesh becomes more and more word. Mm, Logified, right? Say again? It gets logified, logosed, logified. Logified. Exactly, and that's that's why I think that the liturgy guys and the lanky guys, as we come together, (laughs) think it's like absolutely the right thing because the manifestation of the word um, becoming flesh. It, it, the two are really one. It's it's the the natures of Christ of of, of being um, mm. God and man of of deed and word. Um, being able to come together at the kind of I like to consider the liturgy the the place of training where we where we become trained on how to actually engage with the rest of civilization, engage with the the dynamics of God's work within our particular lives, within our communities, within the world. And, and so the, this is just, I think, it, it is particularly inspiring because it's, it, the two meet each other and uh, it's chicken and the egg. What came first? Who knows? And back to your question, Jesse, you know, I, I wrote this little piece for Adoramus Bulletin a while back on the AMBO. And you think, how, what is there to say about an amber, right? It's a nice furnishing, and you, you proclaim the gospel from it. But if you actually read the instructions to the introduction to the lectionary, it talks about what an ambo is, but it also talks about the, what the word is in liturgy. And basically, if you're walking through the Paschal Mystery, or the, you know, the whole life of Which Christ, I do all the time. You have to hear about it. So someone has to come to you and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he did. Let me tell you he rose from the dead. And so it's not like, oh, sometimes we like scripture and sometimes we like Eucharist or we really pay attention to the word and then we wait around for that long, boring Eucharistic prayer. It's, hey, let me tell you what you're about to encounter so that you can know what you're doing. And so liturgy and scripture have this relationship in the, in, I mean, the Eucharist and the, the liturgy. 
Can't talk today. The Eucharist and the Scripture have a relationship, but the yeah. Scripture is a preparation for Eucharist and not just some thing you either ignore or privilege over the Eucharist. And right. This, right, which I think is how a lot of Catholics approach it. Is what's the most important part of the Mass? The homily, of course. Right. <laughs> which I do think, and I don't The donuts after. The, well, that's yeah. fairly crucial. Or there was the old model the where the, the scriptures were not read to the people at all, and they would wait around for their right. Eucharist, and that was enough, right? You get yeah, your spiritual vitamin pill, and you're done. That's a good but point. But to see the whole of the liturgy as a preparation mm. and activity of the mystical body, that's the great insight of the 20th century. Well, what's mm. really interesting as a priest, and I, and I feel like I have a unique perspective, is depending on how the word is opened up or not, because a lot of times people are coming into the liturgy without much preparation, without a real heart disposed to receive. And so the homily, it does actually in a certain sense become this critical juncture because without being able to open up the words, uh, open up the word, people have a hard time receiving what the word really is. And what's actually taking place within the word? I, I like to call it divine pillow talk. You know, like, <laughs> oh, I love it. Because <laughs> sure, sure, you can you can have a conjugal relationship, but if you don't have any intimacy within the relationship, then the conjugal life of a of a marriage um, it, it is becomes a functionary. It just mm. it just becomes something that that's that's mm. not rich with the intimacy of a full life. Whereas whereas the word and the sacrament as the, and and then context and the context of the liturgy without those, then then you actually uh, it starts to you know there's a reason why why couples light candles and put on some mood music to be able to to initiate with each other. Because do you put on mood music for your homilies? Hey, man, I do. Throw some <laughs> rose petals around. <laughs> the, uh, well, yeah, I was cantor yesterday for Mass, and uh, we used Lumen, the Lumen Christi Missal from our graduate, Adam Bartlett, and they have all the responsorial psalms for the week, all on one page. And usually I just look at the one I'm singing, but I had a little time, so I looked at all of them, and it was, Oh, God, your love for us is everlasting. And the next one is, Oh, God, your covenant lasts forever. Oh, God, your mercy is tender, and you never forget us. Every single day, it was it's like liturgical reminder. Barry White. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Let's, <laughs> let's say a prayer. Your mercy is bountiful. Yeah, so... Um, so we do put on mood music. Nice. Beforehand. Yeah. So yeah. Your, your covenant with us is everlasting, and I'm about to go participate in that in the Eucharist. Oh. That's five minutes later, you know. All right. So because this is partially self-serving, because we're not going to, Father Peter and I aren't doing another podcast. Sure. This is gonna, we're going to advertise our oh, people great. to come to this one. But I, I, I keep, my mind actually does keep coming back to this Sunday's gospel. Um, All right. Which, and I, it keeps coming back partially pragmatically because I want to tie it in. But it, there's also something very real there. And I don't know if you guys have gotten a chance to look at it. It's, it's actually a very long gospel. But smack in the middle of it is this, it's uh, in Mark this week. But it's this section where it's the woman suffering from the hemorrhage. Remember this? Mm -hmm. So you have this woman who's been suffering. Oh, I heard that about three years ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you did. But so this woman is suffering profoundly. She's bleeding, which would make her so suffering from this hemorrhage means she's 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 bleeding. She's been bleeding. Was it for twelve years? I think is what it said. Yeah, twelve years. Which what that does liturgically to bring this back um, in the Old Testament liturgy, this would make her liturgically unclean. Which means if there's any um, loss of life, which is what bleeding is, you cannot participate in the temple liturgy because of what you were saying, Dennis. The temple itself was meant to embody creation, both before the fall and eschatological creation, when there was no death and there will be no death 
anymore. And so to bleed, to diminuate life in any way, it means you are cut off from participation, not because you're bad, but it's, that's what this place is meant to remind us of. It shows that, that you know, it's not perfected yet. So this woman can't participate in temple liturgy for 12 years. She is cut off not only, you know, health-wise, but from her community for 12 years until what happens. Jesus is passing through this crowd and she reaches up. She's like, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, which is actually, I think, a reference to this passage in Ezekiel that, that foretells that when the Messiah comes, there'll be healing in his wings. And the wings were actually shorthand for the talit that Jewish men would wear that hung off of, you know, the, the prayer shawl. And so she realizes if I can touch those wings, I'll receive healing, which it's ironic. So on one level, she's she's embodying the reversal of the old covenant because to touch to be unclean ritually and to touch someone clean would make them unclean. But what she's interacting with now is the new temple. So she can't participate in temple liturgy. So what happens? Well, the temple that is now becoming obsolete, the new temple has now come to her. And the new temple, which is no longer obsolete, which is the eschatological perfection, is now passing through town. And her very contact with it is... And this is where I'm not sure, and I don't mean to read into scripture too much, but she touches the hem of his garments, and it's not, it doesn't appear that she's immediately healed. She's like, oh, everything's great. It causes Jesus to say, whoa, who touched me? And they're like, a million people are touching you. Are you crazy? It's a good thing like, no. Jesus wasn't MC Hammer, because he'd be like, can't touch this. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I was trying <laughs> to say he felt power go He said he felt power go Did he say that? Yeah. Is that the same Yes, he felt, his, he felt power go, go out, out of him. Yeah, he did. And... Which is true, and maybe I'm stretching this, because what I wanted to tie back to is that I, 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 and although that's true, I don't think you can separate it from then Jesus speaks the words of healing to her. So you have basically the inverse of what we experience. You have the liturgical, the intimate human reality of human healing, and it's connected to the word of God being proclaimed to this woman. And those two things together actually make this moment in the gospel a, a, a liturgical moment. And it's an encounter with a person. Right? It's an encounter with a person who is liturgy, who is temple. Who is who priest, is, victim. Who is priest, victim, yeah. and king. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a fascinating moment. So we need, this goes back to just, we need both. I mean, we need both. totally right. integrated. Yeah, they have to be. And Jesus, I think, is embodying that because otherwise he could have just moved on and been like, oh, I guess that's that. It's but one of those interesting answers, too, to the question, why do I have to confess my sins to a priest? Well, Absolutely because right. Because there's a person who's talking to you. And we need to hear that voice in, that in our moment. ears. Yeah. 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 In our little ear heads. Which mm. it, it, it's it's the gospel always comes incarnate. That's, that's why Scott and I may have made it uh, kind of a, a literal decision to record the preparations for mass and not necessarily the homily out of the mass itself. Um, yeah. Because, because it, 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 the homily for me, people are always like, Oh father, did you record that homily? And I'm always honored by them wanting to hear what I have to say again, but it's the spirit <laughs> working within the midst of the liturgy. That's a concrete specific moment in time that, that it, it, it's not like you can just receive a podcast and I mean, sure, God be praised. He can work, but it's actually from people it's in relationship. And that's why the synaxis to come and to be in the midst of the community. Jesus touched, Jesus was touched. It was, he was yeah. encountered and everybody was pressing in on him, which is how mass feels like a lot. You know, <laughs> you're trying to sit in a pew. Well, yeah, says the priest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have the best seat. I remember about seven years ago, I was going through a real tough time spiritually, and certain questions were coming up in my mind. And I was, I, I'm a pretty cheerful guy, but I was in true desolation for a week or two. And then the, pa the former rector here gave this homily at the seminary mass. Every word of it 
answered every question that I was struggling with in that moment. And it was like honey coming out of his mouth, like like anesthetic going on all my wounds. And wow. he didn't know anything about what was going on with, with me. And it was just a weekday mass, but it was just... Did he record that homily? I don't think so. <laughs> Is there a podcast on that? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> but it was, it was for me. You know, I heard that for myself alone. Not just, I mean, I went to other people too, but it wasn't just a classroom about scripture. It was... God saying, I have something to tell you through the ministry of this priest, through scripture and the Holy Spirit for you right now. That's what I kind of really like about the mass is how, you know, gosh, like the, the most atypical thing that people want to say about the mass is that it's boring, which is, of course, not true. But we have the ability to go through these repetitive uh, portions of the mass, which help us to continually get closer and closer to Christ and be a part of the, the body, the corporate body of Christ. But the variability in the Mass, too, with the scriptures and the collects and the homilies and the things that change mm -hmm. continually just add those layers upon the things that we're doing the same every week. Say that last part one more time. I want to catch that. The, the, the portions of the Mass that change. That change. The yep. scriptures, homilies, scriptures. Yeah, homilies and the collects and things like that and the different readings and the Eucharistic prayers, they add the layers on top of what we're repeating every week. And so we're getting new stuff even though it's served with the same thing. Which is what which is what family life is, which is mm -hmm. what real, you know, I mean, I, we, we make a point with our three kids to have dinner. We sit down for dinner every night. We do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We're going through the same motions, the same, you know, kids whose chores it is to set the table and take the plates off. We all have the same stuff, but there's different things that happen that day. There's different food on the table. So it, mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the normality, right? The normalcy, the ritual of it is what actually gives the platform for the fruitfulness mm -hmm. to come about. You have Christmas every year, right? Yeah, but right. when you're three, or, three years old, Christmas is one thing. When you're five, it's different. When you're seven. Yeah. And nine, when you're 11, a dad, 15. it's a totally different thing. Oh, it's so much more <laughs> I remember when my sister and I were getting older and there were no little kids in the family and Christmas was boring. It's like, here's your socks, here's your underwear. <laughs> what do we do now? And then she had five kids over the span of eight years and Christmas became this exciting run down the stairs and what did Uncle Dennis get me and it was a whole what new What kind experience. of socks and underwear did Uncle Dennis get me? Well, yeah, you know. Black. Socks and underwear, that sounds like an amazing <laughs> Christmas to me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have a question. Let that be. Since we have two scripture <laughs> yeah, people right. in here, I have this deep scriptural wound. I wound? A, I have a scriptural wound, Shoot. yeah. I was uh, reading this book about the temple, and okay. it wasn't a, a book about the scripture, the t I mean, the theology of the temple. It was, it was, temple. It was about the practicalities <laughs> of the temple. So sure. Was it Edersheim? Uh, it was a little paperback. I okay. bought it in Jerusalem at a museum. And the Holy of Holies had messy things go on in there, blood, sprinkle, and all that, but Pretty nobody could things. go in there but the high priest. So they were and only once a year. Right. And so they're yeah. trying to figure out, well, who's going to clean up this mess? So they have these little pictures, little diagrams, and I guess they have some non-biblical sources that say they had a hole in the roof of the Holy of Holies, and they would actually lower a guy down in a basket on a rope because he couldn't touch the floor of the Holy of Holies. Uh, it's like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Well, kind of, yeah. With a, with a hose. <laughs> with and a hose. So, but then I heard that reading about the paralytic who was lowered in the roof on a mat into the presence of Christ, and then he was healed, and Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. In other words, you can walk on this floor. And I was like... Well, Christ is the presence of God on earth. The presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. He who wasn't worthy to walk on the floor is now suddenly healed and able to walk on the floor. And I just thought I had this brilliant insight. But I asked Scott Hahn about it, and he said no. So are you ready to contradict Scott Hahn? <laughs> what did he say no to specifically? He just went, oh, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> that was it. That's all I got. I think he thought I was being a cute little like kid looking for Look like, reading insight. something into the Bible that wasn't there. But what do you think? Here, feel free to contradict Scott Hahn if you want. I 
Scott versus Scott. All right, well, how about put it, how about put it this way? How would you if this if you had this intuition? How would you approach verifying that? I'm really embarrassed to say that I, I I've never considered how the cleanup crew <laughs> how, how that worked. Um, actually, all I've been ever considered is uh, actually this weekend I was considering how the uh, the high priest would have a rope tied around his waist just in case he died. In that's the holy, true. Holy yeah, that's true. And that, and I was thinking how that related to Poltergeist and how he had the rope tied around it. Oh, yeah. To to the crossing. Oh. It is a crossing over, right? To go into the Holy of Holies. That's into, the, yeah, into heaven. So, so I, I, I was actually just thinking about that. But I never thought, man, how, how do you like dust the place, man? You can't. It's not like you have time to dust as you're incensing. You know what I'm saying? I just imagine they had a really long hose and they would just spray it in there. But wouldn't they? But they, they explain every, literally everything about the whole process except for that, right? Well, well I don't, no. I mean, the simple answer is no. One, one of the things that I've, I've learned as I've gone through, and I, I, did a, I did a course at St. Thomas Aquinas back in Boulder last fall about how the seven Jewish feasts relate to the seven sacraments and kind of going through. But I spent most of my, you know, Leviticus 23 has a lot of liturgical rubrics, but you get the bulk of this material like Dennis is talking about from, you know, extra biblical Jewish sources, which are so rich. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know where you heard that, but if there's no reason for me to think that that's not true. If that's true, if what you said about the lowering, you know, someone in through the hole to do the cleanup job, which seems reasonable seems reasonable partially because there's there's precedent i'm going back to moses right the burning bush there's precedent for something being significant about walking on the ground that is holy so that you could see the logic that could get you to well let's lower him in on a rope so if that's true if that actually did take place and that's actually a, a valid legitimate source then i think the connection to the paralytic who was lowered through the roof i think is huge because okay. now then they're... Dr. Han, you heard it here. <laughs> Trust me, he did not. Yeah. No. I think that, that adds a precedent for us to really ask a deep question if we should start installing skylights over the sanctuary. Oh. Mm. <laughs> and then the altar boys who already have a rope around their albs... They do already like, have a rope. You can just lower them down. Drop a carabiner to them. Yeah. Don't they drop them up? They drop rose petals in the, in the Pantheon every year, right? Oh, That's yeah, yeah, they, they do. Absolutely. It comes down from the sky. There's a place for some good theatrical, liturgical theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> Liturgical theatrics. Yeah. You could lower the janitor in after well, that's <laughs> Easter kind of vigil. What, that's kind of what this is, basically, yeah, right? Right, right? I wonder whose job that was. Do you have to be a Levite to get lowered in through the hole? I, well, you have to be. Curious. You have to at least get into. You have to be a high priest at least to get in right before the Holy Holies, right? Well, to go no. in the Holy of Holies, you had to be that. To, only to go in. To, so Zechariah, remember Zechariah, who's not a high priest, he is as close, he's at the altar of incense. Remember oh, okay, when Gabriel so, appears? Okay. So you can be right you know, outside the But the you would have to at least be that in order a to... A priest. Yeah. A priest. So yeah, okay. you'd have to be a, Levit- a Levitical priest. Hmm. But I don't know about the whole... I'm, I'm, tr- I'm fascinated by this. Oh, good, You've got good. me wanting to <laughs> research that. Ah, good. Because it's really messy. Even Hebrews actually goes out of its way to talk about how messy it is in there. Which you're like, yeah. You just step on crusty blood every year? Yeah. Dr. Dennis, I have to say that that's exactly the kind of uh, associations that uh, that show the glory of God. So if that is true, that's the kind of thing that, that absolutely opens my heart and lights me up to say, oh my goodness, look how we're actually fulfilling the the whole experience of temple sacrifice, all of scripture, the, the preparations and the foreshadowings are now becoming manifest and real. Like 
that, that is how, like when when the Lord when we hear the glory of God, that's how I see it. That's why I'm like, oh, that, that lays me out. If that's if that's the reality, bring it. I'm like, just bathe me in the glory of that. Okay, changing just I, I need to change gears a little bit because I just got bugged by something. So because Dennis brought up Doctor Dennis brought up oh. his his beef with something. Speaking of beef, liturgical beef. Do you have a liturgical beef? Yeah, a little bit because again I'm going back to the the readings this Sunday and I was my mind kept going back to the first reading which is from Wisdom, and the opening line of the first reading this Wisdom talks about how God did not what does it say God did not make death. Because remember, the reading, you know, the gospel is about this woman, the diminution of life. He didn't make death. He doesn't delight in death. None of that's from him. This is all a byproduct of sin, right? So we talked about the, the temple itself, right? All of the, the, the perfection of creation, the eschatological vision, right? All of these things. The entirety of the time, and I just, I want your take on this because I think it's paradoxical. And maybe the answer is obvious, and I'm just not seeing it. And maybe why aren't you asking my take? I want your take oh, too, okay. Jesse, because <laughs> you're wearing a green shirt, which okay, is got very it. creation Start related. Of your puns, <laughs> got it. I'm ready. And Father Peter too. Okay, so every the all of the temple, the whole temple liturgy is, is the whole of the temple is based around the perfection of creation, the 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 eschatological vision before the um, fall. No death can come in, right? Nobody can bleed, no diminution of life, all of these things. If you kill a fly, you can't even go into the temple, right? It's that severe. However, what we just talked about, the centerpiece of the temple is nothing but death. Yes. Death, 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 blood, blood, blood. How do we deal with that paradox? Well, you know, I'm not at all a scripture scholar. I'll throw it back to you. Liturgically. I want your liturgical take. Well, you know, the, um, the notion that the, they had, the Israelites had to destroy that which they were tempted to worship, do you buy that yeah, argument? I, I do. I yeah. absolutely. I don't think that's the whole of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's to oversimplify, but I think it's a huge part of it. It's the, I mean, the preparation for us to know that there is a sacrificial victim, which is Christ. Certainly. But, and even though he's risen and glorified, nonetheless, his sacrifice, his offering of himself is eternal yeah. now. Mm. And so we can represent the same sacrifice rather than re-sacrifice. Right. So um, death is no longer death, right? It's, death is resurrection. Death is life. But how would an Old Testament priest reconcile that? Knowing, okay, your whole mindset is the temple is life. There is no death. Yet everything I do in the temple is about killing. Do you, have you any, do you have an answer? No, I don't. Okay. It's just, it's more of a, I mean, if nothing else, I think it shows that as <laughs> liturgically, architecturally, maybe it shows that as, as much as we're pushing, as much as the old Testament mindset is pushing this idea of perfection of eschatological vision of, of, you know, trying to figure out what this was like before sin, sin is inescapable. Mm-hmm. Death is inescapable. We can create something that is the antithesis of death. Although the altar, death. the altar is outside the temple, right? In the Old Testament, right? So the death is outside and then See, the, that's blood com- the blood comes in. The death is profane. And then in the church, though, the altar is in heaven, right? So the altar is yeah. in the sanctuary of the church. And yeah. so the altar is now the, the victim glorified, I guess. you See, this is not, see, that's why I asked you this question. That's, the, that's interesting. It's, we'd have, it's a that. speculative thinking. Right no, here, no, but that's know? interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting to me. What do you think, Father Peter? Well, I think Old Testament-wise, if we're considering it, I think that um, I would say Rene Girard, the literary critic, would talk about um, a thing called mimetic desire. That, um, that in a certain sense, you, it's, a, it's the idea of the scapegoat, that at the very center, you ha- that you would kill that which um, and destroy that which um, is most desirable. So... 
in, mm. in a certain sense, we see that this is surrounding. I mean, we're talking about bulls and goats, and we're talking about an agrarian level society. Though that there's crafts and there's there's we're starting to approach. So it'd be like sacrificing a Tesla now. It's like sacrificing your Tesla. Oh, that hurts you know, me it's, it's, to hear you even <laughs> think of that. <laughs> I think it's the right it's, analogy. And, and so, in, but in a certain sense, Renee would start to actually lift it up into a place where it becomes personalized. It's the most virtuous. It's the most desirable. It's the greatest leader. So it would actually mm-hmm. move from sacrificing a Tesla to Elon Musk. So, like, <laughs> he's good. He would make a good scapegoat for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's oh like my. it's like take out all your rage against Silicon Valley and kill Elon Musk, and so, uh, so I don't know. I mean, like, uh, so so in a certain sense, that's kind of what ends up happening is that that rage then ultimately is ex- expressed personally in mm. Jesus Christ. So, right. so mm. it's, it's like, how do you regulate um, desire within a society? So, I, I mean, that's probably a total right. um, perversion of Renee. Well, it, it made me think of the idea that you know the. Eve Congar has this line from his book on the mystery of the temple that this is one sentence always stuck out to me, which is the presence of God is holy and confers holiness. Boom, done, right? So the presence of God's in the Holy of Holies. Yep. Anything brought into the presence of God is made holy. So the blood becomes the bearer of God's presence. The bread oh, that's becomes the bearer of God's presence. So the yeah, death yeah, happens yeah, outside. Yeah, yeah. Then the blood is brought into the presence of God. Then it's sprinkled on the people. So the life of God is actually coming huh. through the process of death and then brought out into the world again. So I wonder if, if that's a partial that's way cool, to that's, think about And I'm that. the least smartest person in this room. Um, and even outside the room. The way you conjugated that sentence yeah. speaks to that. Yeah, I am the most <laughs> stupidest. Um, but, uh, but isn't there something to be said about this is foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ himself? Isn't that enough that maybe this exists because it was the best way to get the Israelites to into them. Christianity, into understanding that redemption? And so if they didn't have that bridge of sacrifice, they wouldn't. It's it's an easier jump for right. them to go from there to Christ yeah. than oh oh my gosh well, what, that's what? never even heard of. Why did somebody need to die? Yeah, no, I think theologically you're right. I just I, I think that's the right answer. I just, I'm just fascinated by the thought of if putting yourself in the shoes of the people who don't know what it's foreshadowing. You're like, how do you how are you making sense of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think you're right. But there's the, I think the, the oh, question is so, it's so prickly. I mean, I, I'm looking at my answer and it's totally inadequate to what you're asking because it's, it's actually tremendously confusing, uh, the, like, as, as well as the skylight question. I'm just like, I don't, there's no easy question for it. I mean, no easy answer for that yeah. question. That is such a, a paradox in my mind. Although it does seem like God likes to go straight to the thing that got messed up and enter there and fix it from there. He doesn't say, okay, well, absolutely, you brought death into the world, so snap my fingers and it's done. He's, I'm going to enter into that death and I'm going to transform it from within. You were in the Garden of Eden, I'm going to allow you to glorify the earth. You know, whatever it is, it's not just yeah. vicarious. Well, it's vicarious, but it, it goes to the place where that thing is and he destroys it from within. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. if it's all about death, because of our death, Christ enters into that death and the preparation around the temple would be the preparation for understanding the transformation of death. I think, you're, I think that's absolutely right. That's oh. all. Not bad for an architectural historian. <laughs> not too bad. Hey, not bad for this How guy How many either, scripture right? classes have I had? Zero. <laughs> nah, I, shouldn't I, be, I shouldn't be proud of that. Really. I do have to say this. Again, going back to the readings, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but the second reading, just to round this out. Oh, yeah. Do you know what the second reading's all about? Did you read it, Father Peter? Uh, no. It's about the collection basket. Ooh. So we're talking about what's the key pinnacle moment of the liturgy. 
the collection. Passing on the collection back. The first so. time. And then the second and third time, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> Did you ever read that uh, Babylon B or or Eye of the Tiber that was like ushers sulk down the aisle for unprecedented seventh collection. (laughs) (laughs) I did say that. um, But honestly and sincerely, I want to thank both of you for joining us today. And um, is there to go? We didn't hear about the second reading yet. No, that's all I had to say about it. It's about Paul is is mad at the Corinthians because they're being stingy and they won't give a collection. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Chris Carson's who's not here today, but he talks about the offering in the basket as a theological act, right? You can have your automatic deduction from your credit card for the support the parish, but when you're actually <sighs> yeah. moving and putting something in the basket, it's a precursor to putting yourself on the altar. There's also, so I do have but the I automatic. But I give credit. money if I do it automatically. <laughs> yeah, I know, but there's something, I'm, I always, because we have the credit card thing, which, I mean, it's good. I think it's good for the parish too, but it's, it's always, I feel so ashamed when I have to just pass the basket. I just want to tell everybody around. I'm like, it's cool. I do it on a credit card. <laughs> there's something that feels lacking. Yeah, is, is that they, uh, you you still put in money. A lot of people will still put in cash. And so then yeah. you get, you know, that's <laughs> you get good for everybody. That's good right. for but everybody. But if it's a liturgical act, the yeah. putting money in the basket, no, think, and not just a practicality, they could they could ask for money at the end of Mass or before, but well, it's it, in the middle, right? At the, the exactly. It's a liturgical exactly. act. It's, I think it, that's right. It's, it's, it's actually putting a part of yourself uh, into, yeah. The, yeah. into the chalice, into the bread, and to say, this is who I, this is the truth of myself. So put yeah, your heart in the collection basket, in the basket. Jesse, and your liver and kidneys. Oh, and man. <laughs> and your Tesla. And my, <laughs> <laughs> and my Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, sincerely, thank you for joining us. And since we uh, are kind of merging our listeners this week, is there anything that... Uh, <laughs> That was merging. That was the merging That's sound. That's a merge sound? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You should have seen uh, the so gesture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember in Driver's Ed when there was a zipper merge, the guy was like, this is how you merge. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but uh, I wanted to reach out to you guys to see if there was anything that you wanted to promote since you, uh, we have new people listening to you guys. An awesome week. podcast called The Lanky Guys. Oh, okay. Yeah, hill. From Excellent. beautiful Boulder, Colorado. Beautiful Boulder. It, re- it really is a great resource, especially uh, right before uh, Sunday Mass, if, uh, if you're giving a homily as well. Um, but thank you so much for, for joining us. And, Thanks uh, for having us. Yeah, we really great. are honored by the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope to do more stuff like this in the future. I think this was an amazing conversation. And uh, I don't know if anybody listening to this will... Uh, agree or, or know this, but there was no preparation into this conversation at all. But it, Like it, a typical Liturgy Guys but, podcast. But it was, no so, it was so great and well-rounded, and it sounded like uh, we had topics and things like that. It sounded we did, like we had topics. It sounded like, it probably sounded like yeah. we know what we're doing. But That's but what happens when you're lanky. That's true. You're I wouldn't, I wouldn't know for sure. Ready to spring uh, up and act. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, Definitely listen to the Lanky Guys or the Liturgy Guys. Yeah, if you're listening from our people, listen to the Liturgy Guys. Yeah. Okay, Lanky Guys, if you listen to the Liturgy Guys, do you know what Jesse says at the end of every podcast? Do, do, do. do you know what you say? Yeah, okay. of course. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.